Today on episode number 313 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Jose Luis Wilson shares about his book, This Is Not a Test. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stehoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Jose Luis Wilson is a full-time math teacher, writer, speaker, and activist in New York City, New York. He's the author of This Is Not a Test, a narrative on race, class, and education. He's spoken about education, math, and race for a number of organizations and publications, including the New York Times, The Guardian, TED, El Diario, La Prensa, and The Atlantic. He's a national board certified teacher, a Math for America master teacher, and the executive director of EduColor, an organization dedicated to race and social justice issues in education. Jose, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you for having me. My kids at school, there's a librarian there who I love. And she had my son do an exercise the other day. Maybe you've seen something like this before, Jose. It's an iceberg, but it's about your identity. And it's an exercise where they ask the kids to express what parts of their identity can we see about them or observable about them and what parts of them weren't. And I was sort of cracking up because he had a lot of things about his identity involving him not having any pets. (laughs) I I sort of missed. I was sort of like, I hope that we've talked with our kids enough about race that something about his race would be on there because I always want them to understand those components. And we've read lots of books and all of that. And it was right there in front of me, but I missed it because all I could see was <laughs> the poor guy doesn't have any pets, Jose. And that's in there like four times. <laughs> so, um, I'm curious, Jose, what would you share with us about your identity iceberg? What can we see about your identity and what is unseen? You know, and that's interesting too, because I think this country does a great job of making sure that people start running into whatever cubicles they're supposed to very quickly. Mm -hmm. So either you get ashamed of your identity or you are proud of your identity and that can flow any which way. For me, because of what I see in the mirror daily, I am proud to be a black man in this country regardless. And because of what's currently happening and what has happened over centuries since 1492, 1619, etc. It's worth saying, though, that below that iceberg is a lot of different things a lot for a lot of different people. And I don't often know how to negotiate that. I'm happy, for example, to be, you know, a writer who I believe myself to be a committed writer, a committed friend, someone who is a committed father as well. So some of those elements start coming above that ocean line, as it were, because of the public nature of my work. I also find myself in spaces where I'm very spiritual. I've become very spiritual in the last couple of years, overtly so, uh, whereas maybe I was just trying to find my path through religion and spirituality through the vast majority of my life. So those are just some things I think about. Not to mention, I do... I do like to sing and write poetry, and I appreciate lyricism. I'm 
a connoisseur of so many different types of music, which, you know, it's interesting, like even just wearing the skin that I'm in, people probably wouldn't understand that, but I love reading lighter notes. I love looking at samples and trying to dig into the crates as it were. I don't get as much time as I'd like to, to do that, but whenever I get the opportunity to do it, it's a beautiful thing. At the institution where I work, I was so proud of myself because I wanted they wanted to have some more conversations about the faculty research, but that sounded so boring to me to be like, come together to here. And I, I just couldn't get a title, so I wanted to call it Faculty Liner Notes. And I had to explain to them, Jose, what liner notes are. I just felt so old. <laughs> I was like, I should not have to explain this. But they're really such a neat concept, though. I'm sort of connecting what you said about liner notes with this iceberg thing. You know, think about what would be on our own liner notes. Right, right. I had a friend who I just saw on social media today. She is in the doctor's office right now going through a fertility treatment. And she said she's in the waiting room and they start to play Old Town Road. And she's like, I'm never going to be able to listen to this song the same. I'm curious, Jose, have you had any songs that are taking on new meaning for you in recent weeks or months? Oh, goodness. Well, it's fascinating. I feel like Donny Hathaway has been a revelation for me recently. And not for nothing, but I was listening to Jay-Z's 444, I think it was sometime last year, the year before when he released it. And even though I heard the music before, I didn't quite get the depth of it until he put his own lyrics on it. Then I was like, let me go explore why he's bringing up these samples again. And then when I pulled those samples, I said, oh, so this kind of takes on new meaning as a grown man versus when you're just hearing it to figure out what the music is and where it's coming from. So that's been interesting. Stevie Wonder has a similar vibe to me. Believe it or not, Guns N' Roses as well has been really fascinating to hear at this point in time. Just the levels of anarchy within the music is worth a listen, worth a re-listen. Tell us about your early years of school and the points in time in your life when you first began to take note of the parts of your identity that could be observed by others and also the parts that were not evident right away? Well, you know, I always found myself to be a really good student. And that was at the core of what I believed my identity to be at the time. And I threw myself into studies because it was ingrained in me that that was the way out of poverty. That was the way out of the nonsense and the mess. It was very much an escape portal for me to get into the studies and recognize that those studies were going to take me somewhere where I wasn't sure, but I just knew it was just going to happen. I also know that along the way, though, like I was put in environments where I was learning, but I was learning something different. So in Catholic school, when I was getting my communion and my confirmation, for example, I prided myself on being very well versed on what I was being taught. So that was a theme. But then along the way, I was like, why do I need to know about the Immaculate Conception again? Why do I need to know about these rites of passage, why do I need to memorize all these things? And then I didn't understand that religion was just a disciplined form of trying to get to your spirituality. Spirituality can be kind of amorphous until, you know, you get some sort of practice going. And I, I wasn't able to see that, but I definitely caught why someone would engage in religion in order to connect to the spirituality. Similarly, I used to be part of the Boys and Girls Club over on um, in the Lower East Side, and now it's defunct. Now they've changed the whole apparatus. But back then, 
I was pulled into a group of folks who were trying to teach young black boys and young Latinx boys about their history. And I got to watch Eyes on the Prize. I didn't know that Eyes on the Prize was going to be such a big deal to my formation. But the imagery that I had in my mind allowed me to develop language for it when I came into college. But it was one of the first times when I said, there's a seed being planted in me. I don't have a language for it, but I know it may be important later. But I just studied these things voraciously. I said, oh, like, like I was very good at being a, a good school type person. I just didn't realize that all that information I was gathering was going to become something that would eventually make me whole. And that's a really critical element to all of that. I've been intrigued for a long time about we want to respect our students and we want to give them that transparency to always be seeking for them to understand those whys. I find what you just described in terms of your Catholic faith, the discipline of spiritual practices, those things that to me, it does seem kind of um, impossible to understand those deepest of whys until you're in the practice. Is this something that's come up for you a lot in your teaching or your, or your life? Just You really couldn't explain the why until the person was further into it, the learning and the practice. For sure. And, you know, what's more, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out what the why is for any number of things. Yeah. But eventually you start thinking to yourself, well, why, why human right, period? And then it becomes like, no, actually the things that we do are the why we eventually come to the space where it's like, well, we've known a lot. And in the knowing, we end up knowing nothing uh, to paraphrase Confucius. Mm. I'd also say too, like, I'm not necessarily that big on Catholicism, but I understand why I had to go through it in order to get to the thing that I really wanted. And specifically the Jesuit tradition, which is being a man for others. That's the, the service leadership understanding the context in which we work. Those are things that I learned through the Jesuit fathers in nativity through Xavier as well, Xavier High School, which is a, I guess, a paramilitary school for all intents and purposes, all boys Catholic. Those are lessons that I wouldn't have been able to get pretty much anywhere else. So I'm ultimately respectful of that tradition, even if I'm not necessarily all the way aligned with the religion element. Part of what I may be hearing you say, too, is that there's a little bit on my part when I do get a little more hung up on the why is because how do I know what the why is for the student who's in front of me? Like that, Just because I think I know what it is, I can't really predict necessarily what it would be for them. It's a, it's a really difficult but important tension, I think. For sure. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because as I'm looking at the Black tradition in this country around teaching, what a lot of people kind of either forget or don't know is that when it comes to education, Black parents and Latinx parents value it in at least the top two, if not number one. They want their children to get an education. They want to see that they have great educators who are guiding their children. And they tend to trust a lot of us to do that work. But where we come into conflict is we start saying, well, you know, like as a country, we were saying, oh, well, these kids can't get educated because they're in poverty and yada, yada. And it's like, no, actually, for so many of us, we feel like education is a matter of life and death. And without that knowledge, then, you know, what we don't know can kill us. 
Like that, that's a running theme with so many folks who I speak to on a, on a regular basis. So I know that education doesn't always lead to the outcomes we wish. Just being mindful of what education means for so many of us is so critical to what we consider to be life. And I think the more that we can lean into that understanding and the different understandings that we walk into in the school building, the better. Would you share a memory about a time that you really felt this connection with being a teacher? Sure. Even now seems to be a really good memory, right? This moment reminds me of how often I keep talking about relationships and how important relationships are to any given moment. So now we don't have a school building, but we have some sort of vehicle by which we can communicate with our children who are once in our in front of us and we have these tools where we can kind of see their faces across flat screens but the energy is just not there it is just not being able to see somebody when they get it and when it clicks for them being able to engage in those jokes those moments of humanity as it were the transformative ways that we sit in the classroom and we say, hey, like, let's coalesce around this specific idea. Like, people want to say up and down, oh, you can replicate that if you just angle your cameras, right, and make sure there's this. No, 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 no. That face-to-face interaction is so valuable for me. It is the backbone by which I teach, and I'm struggling now because I don't have it. I feel like an assignment manager because of it. And so it's all this does is remind me is like after 15 years of doing this work, how, you know, powerful those interactions were, even when, mind you, I wasn't the greatest teacher, even when I felt like I was failing the class when I wasn't doing my best. But nine out of 10 times, if you asked me to do this over again, I could not unless it was a pandemic. But on the flip side of that, if this is the only way I can actually teach, then I guess I'm going to have to do it this way, isn't it? That's the way that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was so confronted. It happened before the pandemic, but the pandemic just amplified it in recognizing my own sense of privilege around trying to set social norms in these mm-hmm. online spaces that are just completely inappropriate. And now I just I shake my head at myself, but I guess all I can do is just keep learning and recognize my failures as fast as I can and figure out a new way. But even just there's been a lot of discussion about making sure students have their cameras on. Oh, really? <laughs> who is it that is attempting to control that? And do you at all understand the context in which your students are now? So I'd love to hear a little bit about your students. Would you Would you tell us about them? Well, the vast majority of them are identified as Latinx or Hispanic. And the vast majority of them are descendants of the Dominican Republic. And so there is a heavy Hispanic Latinx flavor in our school, and it's evident but though we also have a large influx of kids that descend from Mexico, from Colombia, from Ecuador even. So we have Central and South American influences along with any number of, I guess I'll call them random in the way of saying that because Inwood and Washington Heights is known as a Dominican neighborhood, it feels like all these other ones like Polish, Irish, Italian, I guess, I think that many kids and African-American or other black identifying kids kind of get sprinkled in the mix every so often. But that's the vast majority of our students and uh, that's their cultural background. And I think from that, I could tell you I saw a grand mix of students with different abilities, right? 
Like I try, I do my best to assure that I am attending to the student and attending to the human being. So it's very easy for me to sit here and be like, I have this many students who are, who have an IEP, who are English language learners, multilingual learners, who belong in a title one, yada, yada, who got free and reduced lunch. There's a, there's a lot of that. But generally speaking, I just have a lot of care for a lot of the kids that I have. And even because, and despite whatever challenges they have, they come into my classroom and I hope to teach them. So that's where I'm at. So I'm going to try this out on you. See how I did with this construction here. I can't wait. (laughs) Jose, you teach math, but you also don't teach math. Explain. Well, there's a saying out there, you know, I don't teach math. I teach students math. And so I may consider myself a math teacher, but really I'm teaching students. And you put me in any classroom, whether it be the subject about English language arts, which I've done, by the way. I'm like, yes, that's I can do that. Social studies. Yes, I can do that. Science. Yes, I can do that. I feel very confident, not because like I know the full subject matter, but because I generally believe that being able to relate to students and explain to students what's in front of them is such a pillar to any of this stuff. So whether it's math, science, whatever, I'm going to be able to get through to them what the idea is that I need to get to them. So that's kind of why I don't consider myself a math teacher. There's also an element too that I'm going to just go ahead and pull out there for everybody is because my public appearances and persona are often tied to issues of race, class, and social justice, people forget that I teach math. And so math teachers have a, there's a prototype for a math teacher that people don't often understand, but they, that they cling so hard to that when they see someone like me, they can't imagine that I'm an, that I actually teach math. Even when we have so many different examples out there of black mathematics teachers who've done this for generations on end. So th- those are just two parts of that, right? Like one is my own self-actualization about the way I move about the classroom. But the second is very much about how people react to somebody who's not trying to talk about math 24-7 and trying to derive things and create models for things, but is genuinely interested in the interactions with our students across their own identities and our identities. Math is, of course, a topic, and I, I know that you've spoken, written a lot about this, but math is a topic that yes, as a subject, but also is something that can be so alienating to people and alienating because our sense of identity and what we're good at and what we're not good at just slams right against it so much. Where do you think about your role as trying to help students change that part of their identity? And what are some of the the things that you've tried and wrestled with in that realm? Well, what I often find is that when it comes to math teaching, there's a small difference culturally, but small, a significant difference between if you teach English language arts and math. I think the general public fully understands that math is an important subject to teach. However, literacy is something that is treated societally so delicately that if you call somebody illiterate, that is offensive. It is a diss. It is a curse in so many ways. But if you call somebody enumerate, it doesn't faze anybody. And for some people who are good at math, they're like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I am good at math. And then it just goes away. Or if they're not good at math, they're like, 
well, you know, my mom wasn't good at math or I wasn't good at math. So I guess it's okay if my child's not that good at math. I, it's whatever. Like, it's just numbers and letters. What are we going to use it anyway? Which is weird because no one ever says, well, you know, all you have to do is learn how to read this manual and that's it. No, actually, people want you to be able to read complex texts and decipher meanings. But when it comes to math, people don't have the same level of conversation. It's very much like you can add, you can subtract, just do the basics and you should be fine. No, 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 no. Let's keep the same energy with both topics. Like we want to make sure students are proficient in some level with math. doesn't have to go all the way to like algebra two, but at the very least where they're, you know, they're competent in being able to manipulate numbers and make interpretations of them. That's all important for me. So I think a part of it too is, having someone who actually believes that students can actually do it and trying to have that person impressed upon the idea that our students are more than capable of doing the work in front of them, that they are all mathematicians in their own way. And as long as they are complete, consistent, and correct, then they should be fine. They could do it from multiple angles. They could do it multiple ways. It doesn't have to be just one way. And if it's a way that they understand and they, they can continually use it across, then they're going to be really good at math. That's the way that goes. But that's a conversation we as a collective mathematics community have not had. There has been such conversation around mindset, fixed mindset, growth mindset, and that has just permeated the conversation. But what you just brought up hasn't come up enough. So we just turn around and blame it back on the students again. Oh, look, it's actually your fault. Ultimately, you're not good with math. And it's your fault because you have a fixed mindset about your own math. But there is emerging research that comes out about the connection between teachers' mindsets about their own students and how we can limit them or in some ways help them to heal that in their own selves. I just think it's so powerful. I will post it in the show notes on one of the articles that I came across and I've posted it in previous episodes too, but just in case anyone missed it, I think this is a really important part of the conversation. We're just not having enough. And it becomes, a, you know, like an extension of Ruby Payne's culture of poverty, right? Where you forget to put it, the onus on the adults and it becomes very much on, let me put the onus back on the kids. And there's just no way we can fix this because they just need to be able to just change things. It's like, no, we also very much have a responsibility towards that nurture, towards that care, towards speaking up about that culture. Systems don't run without the adults who keep running them. And if we are to change those systems, then we who act within the system have to find ways to change that system. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about just the limitations for you of the two-dimensional screens that you are attempting to connect with your students on. So I ask this next question with that very much at the forefront of my mind, but I want to know what kinds of opportunities you're having or are you having about talking with your students about what's happening in our country right now? You know, because my students are middle schoolers, I'm honestly having a hard time having that conversation from the context of their homes. It's mm -hmm. almost like Bloom's taxonomy, which, by the way, of course, is, you know, I guess appropriated from the Black Blackfoot Nation. So shout outs to them. But being able to just make it day by day feels like a traumatic experience for so many of our kids. Then talking about what's happening outside makes it even harder unless you have an environment, right? So when Trayvon Martin had been killed and any number of folks throughout my teaching career had been killed mercilessly. 
I was able to carve out time from my teaching schedule to assure that students had safe space to talk about it. Even during the past 2016 election, that morning was horrid. So I just spent the morning saying, hey, like, what do y'all want to talk about? And just leave it open. It's harder to do that now because now they're at home and now they've been at home. And that's just been a difficult thing because that's the trauma, right? Like they're ripped away from their friends. They're ripped away from their families. And all they have is this digital screen that may offer some, you know, solace, but not really. So I did put it out there for folks. But as far as like actually biting, I mean, it's been difficult. So I do try my best to interweave questions into my assignments about how they're doing, how do you feel, that sort of thing. And I think that's actually added some benefit. But for me to actually have a full-on discussion has been a struggle. <laughs> it's been a struggle. The librarian that I was mentioning at the very start of the interview that did the identity iceberg exercise, she did something mm-hmm. the other day. And it actually, it was some a video that she did about being safe in and being a safe person when you go into online spaces. But it was just one of those moments where it was a little on the longer side and we were getting toward lunch and I decided just to talk to them about some of those questions. And then there was a one question Google form that she wanted them to fill out. And it was, it was exactly what you just said, Jose. So it was like, you know, how, how are things going? (laughs) And, you know, as a parent, you just need to let your kids just show up how they're showing up. And I so many times just find myself wanting to, should we censor this? But anyway, it was like, things are going good because I get to play a lot of Minecraft, but people are dying. So it's also bad. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Just> uh-huh. Like, <laughs> yeah. But well, those little spaces, I mean, I wouldn't have known that about my son that like he is actually aware that bad things are happening. But at the same time, like you, you were describing this for your students what's happening inside their home versus outside. It seems so much more profound than maybe ever before because there wasn't such a difference between those two things. There was like, I'm in, but I'm out, and I'm, you know, like, I'm moving around the world, and then all of a sudden it's, I'm in, but I can yeah. see what's out there too. For sure, for sure. And of course, not to mention too, because the number of cases have been so prolific within the Washington Heights, Inwood, and Harlem communities. Any number of our students have been affected by COVID deaths. I think about at least two or three students I know who've had a relative pass away, their father, their uncle. And so it's gotten really personal. Like when this first started, it was like, oh, I know somebody maybe six six degrees away from me that was affected by this. And then as the days passed by, the degrees got getting smaller and smaller. So it was like, oh no, we actually know somebody who passed away. We know somebody's. I I would even say, and it's interesting too, because social media plays such a big role in this. It's like, when I logged into social, social media, like uh, Facebook, the first eight out of 10 posts were about somebody passing away. And I just said, oh, my goodness, like this is getting so real and it's, we can't hide. Even as we're socially, physically distancing, I should say, we're not socially distanced. So that's critical for all of that. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And I've recommended this podcast in general before. It's amazing. It's called Scene on Radio. And the first word scene is like a scene in a theatrical production, not like a (laughs) S-E-E-N. So Scene on Radio is wonderful. But their first set of series was called Seeing, this time as in looking, Seeing White. And it was a really, really good set of of episodes. And then more recently, they're doing some episodes around 
history and race. And, and the specific one is the episode is called More Truth. How well do the news media serve us as citizens? And what role does the notion of objective or neutral journalism play in the failings of American democracy? And I had heard many of these stories before about we claim something's objective, but that's just all a matter of, of perspective. And mostly that's um, more punishing, I guess, to differing views from the majority. But hearing them all together in the beauty of the storytelling that they do, but also getting to hear from some of the journalists. So one of the women had been fired from her job as a journalist for expressing her views on the Hobby Lobby case that had come up in the Supreme Court. And she did it as a person, you know, just expressing how she felt about something on social media, but they have rules in that organization against that. And so to actually, again, I had read this story before, but then to actually hear the voice of the woman was really, really powerful to me. And I'm, I'm only just skimming the surface. I feel like I need to go back and listen to it about 10 more times before I could even start to get some of the nuance and depth here. It's really, really good. I highly recommend it. So I'm going to pass it over to you, Jose, now for your recommendations. Oh, goodness. Well, I obviously would recommend my own book because I have to do that. I was told <laughs> I should be doing that. So I'm going to go ahead good, and do that. Good, 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 good. <laughs> Absolutely. I also want to recommend that folks follow the EduColor movement. That's EduColor.org. And that's also EduColor MBMT on Twitter and Instagram. And the reason I'm only recommending those things right now is also because I have to recommend that people focus on the moment in time that we're in right now. I think it's so fascinating to watch how many educators, people who are considered, I guess, colleagues, contemporaries, who don't want to speak to the moment and time that we're in, where everything is still very much about, let me just share this resource that can be used any time or where they want to put five or six different hashtags and ads, but none of them are actually related to what the current events are. I think we need more educators who can speak to what's going on right now in our country, who can actually help heal our country, who can educate our kids. And this specifically pertains to my fellow Black educators, my fellow educators of color, being able to speak to experiences that are marginalized, that are often vulnerable in these times, and making sure that our curriculum and our pedagogy and our systems are actually reflective of these experiences. Some people like to say, and that includes myself, it is a miracle that it's taken this long for people to actually uprise, that we haven't seen an uprising like this since Ferguson. You would think more of that would happen because we still have children encaged on the borders. We still have children being harassed and harangued because they're LGBTQIA+. We still have an educational system that works as intended, that continues to marginalize so many of our kids. And then we keep talking about gaps, but then we never actually want to seek to address those gaps because we... There's a grand swath of very powerful people who, yes, they may believe in equality, but they want some people to be more equal than others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes, that is an Animal Farm recommendation interpolated for this moment in time. So that's what I'm recommending is being able to heal and really love one another and show that love. Let the hate flow through. Let the anger flow through because that's going to help make change. But at the end of the day, we do it because we have a real love for each other. And people should be so thankful that we want this American experiment to actually work. 
Jose, it is such an honor to get to talk to you. And I echo your recommendations for your book. That is one of the reasons I was so excited to get to have this conversation with you. You just pour yourself out of that book. And I I truly felt just a compelling story about what this has meant to you in your life to be a teacher, but also you give us, you challenge us as readers and you give us hope as readers. And what a joy it is to talk to you today. Thank you very kindly. I'm so grateful for the conversation with Jose Luis Wilson, and I wanted to say if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to learn more, I encourage you to check out the Digital Pedagogy Lab 2020. It has moved online and will take place July 26th through August 2nd. You can go to digitalpedagogylab.com in order to find more information about his keynote as well as the other keynotes and instructors. Thanks so much to each of you for listening today. I'm more grateful than ever to be in community with you and conversations like the one I just got to have with Jose are just a reminder that we are all doing this in solidarity with one another. There is important work to be done and we're more important to each other than ever in that work. So I really take it. uh, It's an honor that you would listen to the podcast during a time when I know most of us are not commuting the way that we used to, uh, less time where we may have opportunities to listen to podcasts. So I really do treasure that you would take this time out of your day to listen. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.